0: Hi there, we really hope you enjoy this teaching from the Message Trust. To find out more about all the exciting things we're doing, check out our website, message.org.uk. Well, it's really a real privilege to be here with you this afternoon and to open God's Word. If you have your Bible, can you open it at John's Gospel? Um, We're going to be drawing a few thoughts from there as I've been praying for you guys. A little bit of introduction. Um... I have been working as a full-time evangelist and apologist with um, Ravi Zacharias Ministries for 21 years, so clearly I was 11 when I started, Um, and it's been a great privilege over that time to um, be also invited into leadership, so for the last five years I was leading our Europe, Middle East and Africa work, which really meant identifying potential Arab, African, and European evangelists, training them and then encouraging them to lead ministry in their own nations. Um, I'm also married to an amazing guy called Frog. Yeah. <laughs> Sam's preached at our church, so um, that was awesome. And we have been church planting for the last eight years in on a farm in Buckinghamshire, trying to learn from how the Celts evangelized pagan Britain. Um, so slightly different from what we were doing before, which was um, we were in Peckham in the inner city for seven years. And my dad was also a, a church planter. and I lived in the inner city in Birmingham for seven years between nine and 16. So it's kind of in my ministry blood, although what I do now is more focused on the proclamation of the gospel in really secular spaces, so often universities or kind of political settings, and more recently in businesses. So we've developed an evangelistic week, which we call Festival of Thought, which happens in kind of corporate centres of massive influence like Canary Wharf, like the city of Singapore and just a few weeks ago in Zurich where something like a third of the world's wealth is kept under there and it's so in one sense dead to the gospel but we were in the biggest banks. I got to preach the gospel to 200 bankers at UBS and really um, really challenge them to follow Jesus. It's the same gospel on the streets of Peckham in, in the hallways of UBS, in the, in the biggest universities in the world. So um, that's a little bit about what I do. But um, just to say that who you guys are is such a gift to the church, obviously, not just in Britain, but globally. And I think what you carry in your leaders, but in all of you, is. So critical at the moment that primacy of the proclamation of the gospel, alongside God's love for the poor. So, the actual content of turn to Jesus, repent, and and be saved. And so, I want to thank you so much for the encouragement that that is to me and to our team. So, can I just pray as we open John's gospel? Father, thank you for your word and. We know that even though we're involved in ministry, we can be dry sometimes. It can be hard to um, feel and experience your presence when we're so busy and we're driving forward and we're grinding and we're, um, we're pushing into new things. Lord, I pray that in this, these moments we have together, I pray that you would confront us with your voice, your word. I pray that you would draw our hearts and our eyes back to you. I pray that where we need it, that you would reposition our priorities and our thought patterns and the habits we've got into. So, Lord, we just open ourselves to you, to your spirit, through your word, in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, um, I sense this afternoon, as as I was praying for you guys, that Jesus wanted to ask you, slash us, four questions. And they're all questions that he asked people in John's Gospel. And um, obviously the contexts in which he asked them then are different from the contexts that we're going to find ourselves in today. But I believe that he wants to speak to us through these questions and and, um, to challenge us, I guess, to reflect on what he's saying to us through those questions so the first one comes in chapter one of john's gospel it's actually the first line that jesus speaks in the gospel of john and it's this question he says what do you want what do you want john's gospel chapter one verse 38 the first words out of the son of god in the gospel of john the disciple that jesus loved Potentially, the most kind of theologically rich, Christologically kind of clear gospel. What do you want? I think around the world and in the church, one of the things that I detect at the moment is a rise in discontent, a feeling that all is not well. You know, the Hebrews have this word shalom, which we translate as peace but actually it meant a deep sense of all things being well and in their right order. And I sense that this is something that's happening there, that God might actually be doing something stirring in the nations, but there's also a a negative side to this discontent. And part of it arises from the rampant materialism that we've been pursuing in the West, Materialism, by which I mean philosophical materialism, the idea that there is no God, all that exists is physical matter. As well as materialism in the economic sense, that all we live for is to own more and consume more material stuff, whether that be money or possessions or whatever. So a study was done at Harvard um, Business School a couple of years ago. And it looked at the connection between the pursuit of wealth and materialism and people's actual sense of well-being. And it was trying to say, well, what's the connection between these two things? And what they did was they asked more than 2,000 people who had a net worth beginning at a million dollars, but many of them far exceeding that. That was the lowest baseline of those 2,000 people. And they said to those 2,000 people, you need to tell us, on a scale of 1 to 10, how happy you are. Okay, so everyone did that, 2,000 people. And they went back to them and said, here's the second question. How much more money would you need in order to get from the number you are at currently in your happiness scale to get to 10? What would it take to move you up that scale? And regardless of where those 2,000 people began, whether it was a one million or a hundred million, all of them said they needed two to three times more than they currently had in order to be happy. One writer puts it like this. Experience has taught us that material wants know no natural bounds. They will expand without end unless we consciously restrain them. And capitalism rests precisely on this endless expansion of wants. And that is why, for all its success, it remains so unloved. It's given us wealth beyond measure, but it's taken away the chief benefit of wealth, the consciousness of having enough. Now, I used that quote with 200 Swiss bankers in UBS, and they were on the edge of their seat, and quite a few of them turned to Jesus that night, because they knew, they know that nothing is ever going to be enough if you're pursuing materialism. But here's the question I sense Jesus wanted to ask us today. What do you want? We're not Swiss bankers in this room. We're Christian workers, Lord. A little bit more would be great. Um, (laughs) But I wonder if we're in a space of discontent where nothing could ever be enough, whether we've been polluted, whether that toxicity of the culture is seeping into our souls too. And, you know, a ministry like this where you're exemplary at reaching out to the poorest of the poor, we can still be vulnerable to the thief and the robber who seeks to steal our conscious sense of knowing that who you are in God and where he has you right now is enough. Because he is enough. So that was the baseline, okay. Okay. Second dimension to the question, what do you want prophetically, spiritually, in terms of your calling, in terms of where God has you, have you lost sight of that big picture vision of what God is calling you to go after in this life? It can be really um, easy, I, I mean I just celebrated 20 years in ministry last year And um, I think as you go on and maybe as you kind of gather leadership responsibilities and then you have teams and suddenly you've got, you know, you're looking after teams of 80, 90 people and you've got fundraising and, you know, vision casting and all the stuff that's involved in leadership, we can lose sight of that thing that God is really calling us to, that vision, that dream that he's put in our heart. And one of the things that I've noticed is that persecution actually helps focus the mind on what that is. So I was talking to, um, a few years ago now, a woman leader in the underground church in China. Um, So it's an amazing conference. We had gathered about 200 of the pastors of the largest church underground church networks in China, and they'd come for... A week of kind of intensive Bible and theology training because they're all preacher communicators but most of them you know haven't had access to any kind of mentoring or training. And um, uh, 40% of them were women. I thought that was interesting. They're really leading the way um, in China in in terms of, of seeing men and women released. And I was talking to one of these female church pastors and she was saying, I have a question. I've got a, a really um, a deep question, not a deep question, but it was, about prayer. And I, I just want you to tell me what I should pray in a particular situation and what I shouldn't pray. Because, you know, I just really need help in this. So I was like, okay, well, what's the situation? She said... Um, a few years ago, like two, three years ago, her son and my youngest son were the same age. So we had had these babies at the same time. She said, six months after my baby was born, my husband was taken by the police and and he disappeared. And that's quite common. It's on the increase again, actually now, persecution in China for, for the last sort of, six months. A lot of those key leaders are back in prison. And she said, I want to know, is it right for me to pray for him to be released or not? She said, don't answer yet. I want to tell you more information. The next bit of information is that, you know, she was looking after... um, I think it was 200 churches that she and her husband had planted together. And it was about 40,000 people that she was, they were pastorally responsible for. And now he was gone. She's got a baby. She doesn't know where he is. They live by faith. So she's literally the food she's going to get on a daily basis. She trusts in God for, should I pray for him to be released? Because I'm struggling a bit here. You know, I'm finding it a bit hard looking after my baby, 50,000 people, and I don't know where my husband is, but I'm not sure whether it's right for me to pray for him to be released. So I'm like, well, why on earth not? She said, there's more. A few months after he'd been in prison, she did find out where he was being held. And it was miles away. It was a day's journey away, and she was able to go and visit him. So but by this point, she hadn't seen him for a year. So she goes into the prison, and they meet And it turns out that he had led the prison governor and the entire prison to Christ. So there were now X thousand people worshipping Jesus in this prison. But he was like, I think God might want me to be here a bit longer because they don't know enough yet for me to be released. So here's her question. Theologically, should I pray for him to be released or not? Can you imagine? What do you want? She wanted her husband, but she wanted more than that, God's kingdom. My, um, my colleague on our team who works in Jos in northern Nigeria, itinerant preaching evangelist, preaches to thousands, often to Muslims. His name is known by Boko Haran and all the top sort of jihadi people, and they are, our team there are hunted. And he was doing this particular campaign, preaching the gospel kind of tent mission style thing. And the jihadis heard that this was happening, they saw the publicity, and they came to find him. And he had to hide, this is only a few months ago, he was hidden in a Christian family's basement for 48 hours as they went house to house with guns, hunting him in order to kill him. So we're getting WhatsApp team messages saying, just pray for Gideon, pray for Gideon, pray for Gideon. He doesn't see the light of day for 48 hours. But he, he, he loves Jesus. He knows God has called him to be a preacher to those people. And thousands turn to Christ. What do you want? What do you want? What is the dream, the goal, the vision for which it is worth giving everything, for which it is worth persevering, for which it is worth following Jesus, for which it is worth giving to the point of great cost because Jesus is so glorious. What do you want? And here's the question, is it enough? Is it enough? Is what you're asking God for, is what you're going after enough? Earlier on in John's Gospel, we read that Jesus is the Logos, who was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things Were made. Jesus is the one who brought this complex universe into existence. The one who wrote the wrote the however many billion letter word that is DNA. He's the ultimate capital W word of God. Is what you want enough? Is it worthy of Him? Second question comes in chapter six of John's Gospel, verse sixty-seven. And the context is that large crowds have been following Jesus and he's been doing this amazing teaching segment on, you know, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will never be hungry. He who drinks will never be thirsty. This uh, amazing miracle then demonstrating this divine claim to be the bread of life. He feeds the the 5,000. And then the Jews start asking him questions. And then the heading in the NIV from verse 60 is Many disciples desert Jesus. And they start saying, On hearing this, many disciples said, This is hard. Who can accept it? And um, they start leaving Jesus. And then Jesus asks this powerful question in verse 67. He says, You don't want to leave two, do you, to the twelve? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. So here's the really awkward question I felt I should ask you today and that Jesus wants to ask you today. Do you want to leave? Is it too hard? Our people are people fading away? Are the numbers that you expected not quite there? People that you'd invested, hope in, been snatched away? That experience of disappointment in ministry at some point is to be expected. And Jesus is okay with asking us this question and calling us to ask ourselves this question Do you want to give up? Do you want to leave? But Peter's answer is stunning. He says, to whom could we go? Where could we go? You have the words of eternal life. In other words, the answer to that massive question, what do you want, that is the question that defines the drive in the human heart, only has an answer in one source. And it's not an intellectual theory. It's not a book. It's a whom can only be answered in you Jesus and there aren't multiple whom's who can answer it it's only you because you have the words of eternal life this is capital L life elsewhere John's gospel says in him was life and that life was the light of men of people in other words outside of Jesus it's not even existence it's it's death spiritual death utterly hopeless void of emptiness In him is life. You have the words of eternal life. And then fascinatingly, in the Greek, sorry, we had to bring the Greek into it at some point. The tense here of the verbs is is significant. You say the NIV says we've come to believe. But the tense means this has happened and it continues to happen. Okay, it's a a continuous aorist, past thing that also carries forward. So we have come to believe and we continue to believe. And we've come to know and we continue to know. Okay, interesting choice of words, isn't it? We believe and we know that we know. Okay, this is what philosophers called epistemology. How do you know what you know? What's the process of knowing? Well, the Bible says that as a Christian, you don't just believe, you know. And God cares about what state of believing and knowing you're in. And the promise of salvation, of genuine salvation, is that it has a beginning, but it also continues. That's the hope. There's hope in him. He holds us. He carries us through. And what have we come to believe and carry on believing and come to know? It's all about Jesus, who he is, that he's the Christ, he's the redeemer. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And that's true for everyone. Do you believe and know that Jesus is the Christ? Are you living into that? Are you carried by the Spirit to continue to believe and to know What's the time? Is that my clock counting down? Okay, great. Um, Sorry, I forgot to. Terrible. Always look at your watch before you start. Okay, third question comes in chapter eight of John's Gospel, and the context is um, the the women caught in adultery. And we all know the story, I'm sure most of you have preached on this, on this story, um, so you know it. You know that this couple are caught in the act of committing adultery, and it's the woman who's dragged out by the Pharisees. And she's made, she's shamed in an unashamed culture, she's made to stand before an entire group of men. And they say to Jesus, Jesus, this woman was caught in adultery in the law. Moses commanded us to stone such a woman, what do you say? And John helpfully says, they were using this question as a trap. And then um, it says, Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And they kept questioning him and he straightened up and said to them, let any of you who's without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he stoops down and starts writing again. And those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first. First. I wonder what Jesus was writing. Until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Now, just as a matter of text, I hope you guys love the Bible, by the way. But as a matter of textual interest, think about the last time in John's Gospel, four chapters ago, Jesus was standing alone with a woman. And his male disciples come across and they were astonished to see him talking to a woman. And then she goes on to become the first evangelist in John's gospel. She'd come and meet the man who told me everything I ever did. Okay. So now we've got echoes of that. She's, she, Jesus is there. He straightens up. Here's the question. Woman on her own with Jesus. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? that's the question in our churches in our culture many of us are carrying a pervasive sense of shame either around things that have been done to us spoken over us or things that we've done That's the truth, that's the reality. But actually, it's the same in the ancient world. This is the context into which the Bible is written. The Bible is written into the real world that you and I live in, where terrible things happen to lovely people. It's not written into a fantasy, mythical dream world where there are fluffy bunnies and lovely miracles. God actually reveals himself in space and time and history into reality that is recognisable. That's the context of the biblical miracles. That's the context of Jesus teaching people. This is our world. And he says to her, and he asks her, ask the question this morning, afternoon, whatever time it is. Where are they? Where are the voices of condemnation that are able to stand In the presence of Jesus, where are they? Um, A little while ago my very dear friend was helping at a youth group in London and um, so lots of you involved in youth ministry so you'll recognize this particular individual in her youth ministry who never engaged in anything, however exciting, fabulous, spirit-filled, awesome it was. She sat there with the stoniest face and never said anything more than whatever. You know, that was it. And um, my friend was really concerned for her, praying for her. She actually got a small group of women in the church praying for this girl by name, that there'd be some sort of breakthrough in her life. And nothing worked. She tried taking her out for coffee, Bible study, all sorts of things. Nothing worked. And then one day... The youth group went to hear J. John preach. And I'm sure probably many of you have heard him give this same illustration. But in the middle of his talk, there's maybe 3,000 people there. He um, He says to this group of young people, I'd like a volunteer from the audience. And this being teenagers, no one moved. And so he pointed into the audience at this girl. And she was like, no, whatever, 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 no eye contact. And he was like, no, no, I want you to come up, come up, come up. And so she had to go up. She came up onto the stage and he said, right, I'm going to give you something. But first of all, I just want to do something to it. So he reached into his pocket and he pulled something out that he didn't show people what it was, but he scrunched it up. And then um, he had some mud and he put some mud on it and then he put a bit of water on it and then he put it on the ground and he stamped it under his foot and then he picked it up and he gave it to her and said, right, this is for you. You can honestly actually keep this and I want you to hold it up and show all the youth here what it is. So she holds it up and it's a £50 note. And suddenly everyone wanted to volunteer. This girl was given 50 quid by J. John and she went and sat down. And he used that illustration to preach on how um, the message of the cross, the message of the gospel, the church can actually layer all sorts of things over it. The world can say all things, sorts of things about Jesus, but it does not devalue what the message of the cross actually does and what it really means. And that forgiveness of, uh, offer of forgiveness is real, it's for today, and it cannot be tarnished or harmed by, by people who layer stuff over it. So afterwards, my friend takes this girl out for coffee and says, how are you doing? How did you cope with that? You know, what, what was your experience of that? And she says, well, I don't know if you've noticed, but, you know, at sort of youth stuff, I haven't really been joining in that much. My friend's like, well, you know, yes, it's sort of, I kind of noticed. And she says, well, the thing is that... A few months before I started coming to this church, I was in a situation where we really needed money at home. We didn't have enough food, and I sold myself for £50. I had sex with someone for £50, and so when I started coming to church, my friend brought me. I really liked everything that I was hearing, but I just knew it wasn't for me because I was too dirty, So I was drawn to come and see it and to hear about it. And I thought, wow, that would be so amazing. But I knew that I was excluded from that because of what I'd done. There was just this wall between me and this message that I was drawn to. And then she said, through that weird man who's a bit like Mr Bean. It was like God pulled me out in front of people and gave me that £50 back. And now I know that I can be forgiven. Isn't that awesome? Where are the voices of condemnation that are powerful enough to devalue the Son of God who calls you clean, who calls you forgiven? That's what Jesus says. Where are they? It's like, come on. Will you hear that today over your life? Are there areas? of shame disappointment perhaps violations that have happened that you just you just can't go there and Jesus is saying has no one condemned you and then he says neither do i condemn you go and sin no more bible says for those who are in christ jesus there is now no condemnation can we live into that today can you hear that question and can you be freed by it today Last question, chapter 9, John's Gospel, verse 35. The context is um, Jesus heals the the man born blind. And um, there are loads of interesting things again in this text. There's this question of karma. You know, whose fault is it that this man is blind? Was it his parents' sin or was it something he did? Um, And then uh, this whole thing happens. Jesus heals him. And um, they have this whole interaction around being clean and being able to go into the temple and all of that. And then in verse 35, it says, Jesus heard that they'd thrown him out of the temple. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? Do you believe in him? We need to flick back to Daniel chapter 7, um, verses 9 and 10 understand the question sometimes I don't know if you've ever read the Narnia books and you sort of think you know son of Adam daughter of Eve like this as if the son of man is a sort of human title for Jesus it's saying Jesus was truly human lots of people think that it doesn't mean that the son of man is a divine title that was revealed in the old testament through a prophecy of Daniel so whenever Jesus is referred to in the New Testament in the Gospels as the Son of Man, something very powerful about who he is is being asserted. And this is what is being asserted. Daniel looked, thrones were set in place and the Ancient of Days, capital A, capital D, this is a title of God. God is the Ancient of Days, took his seat, He sit, God is sitting down. His clothes were as white as snow, and the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its feet and its wheels were ablaze. A river of fire was flowing before him, coming out before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated, and the book was open. So that's God. And then verse 13, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his glory. So there's God with his white hair and his flaming throne sitting down and the, and the, son, of, uh, the son of man doesn't crawl on his hands and knees into the presence of this ancient of days. He walks in and he approaches the throne. This is awesome. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worship him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That's the son of man. So Jesus is saying, do you believe that Jesus Christ has all authority, glory and sovereign power? Do you believe that it is right and appropriate that all people of all language and every nation worship him? Even if they've been brought up in a different culture. Even if they're currently worshipping someone or something else. What is true and right is that they worship Jesus. In other words, Christians are not defined because we were born in this culture or we speak that language or we wear these clothes. No, the son of man is above all of that. And it says his dominion is everlasting. So this isn't just some revelation in a particular period of time for a small group of people. This is for all time, for all people and it shall never be destroyed. His kingdom is eternal. That's what Jesus asked the man born blind. Do you believe in him? Do you believe in the son of man? Listen to what the man says. Love this. The man said, who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. And Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking to you. And the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him do you believe in the son of man? I actually believe that this is currently at stake in unbelievably in the evangelical church. The nature of Christ that he is to be worshipped by all that he has glory and sovereign power that he is not defined culturally or for language group or by time But that our worship of him, his sovereignty and our evangelistic efforts are a response to who he is as the son of man. That all people have the opportunity to come to know him. It feels like that is at stake right now in the church. And so God is asking us, do you believe it? Do you believe that Jesus is the son of man? Do you believe in the son of man? Do you believe that Jesus is the one who is sovereign, who should be worshipped by all, all of us? Is that your vision of who Christ is? Does that drive you? Does that delight you? So four questions for us. What do you want? Do you want to leave? Where are they? Does no one condemn you? Where are those voices of condemnation? And do you believe in the Son of Man? Amen. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to check out message.org.uk to find out how you can support or even get involved with one of our teams.